Okay, can we open up our Bibles now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We come to one of, if not the most well-known story in the entire Bible. David and Goliath. It's a timeless tale. It's Christian or non-Christian would know about this story. Uh, we look to it as this, this sort of epic story of the underdog, right? The little guy winning over the big bad guys. Um, I mean, it is featured in every child, uh, child storybook Bible. And um, it would even lead little kids to dress up as David at the age of eight for Halloween. <laughs> this really legitimately. I was David. That is my, my sis, older sister. She is Mary. That's little baby Jesus with her. Um, aren't we cute? <laughs> now, the common view of David and Goliath, this story is the, sort of a paradigm for us to conquer or sort of slay our personal giants. You know, you maybe develop a, a Bible message to lead to kind of our, the five smooth stones that represent the five keys to unlock you're winning in battles in life. Uh, maybe that obstacle is a hockey game or some business venture. Uh, one influential author wrote a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants and spent uh, number four on the New York Times bestseller for some time. So this story is known, and the story will sell books, even business books. And so we, we come to this, and we, we can draw some principles that about this amazing story about underdogs and sort of conquering personal obstacles. But, but my hope is today is that we, we don't miss what this amazing story is really about. If, if you've been in any church context for some time or you grew up in church or you dressed up as David as a child, uh, you, you may have been asked to identify with certain characters in the story. Who, who are you? Who are you supposed to be? David or Saul or Israel or hopefully not Goliath. Um, so is this text here to call us to be, be more like David? Or, or is there more going on here in this story for us? And I, our hope is that we just come this morning with sort of fresh eyes and allow this wonderful story to unfold. And as we do, that we, that we would encounter God. We, we would hear his promises. We would see his power. And ultimately, we would, we would encounter Christ and his grace. So we're going to just walk through this massive narrative. Actually, out of all of Samuel, this is the largest narrative section in all of the book. Uh, we could spend weeks in this, this chapter, so there's a lot we're going to cover. But my hope is that we would, we would slow down and hear what God would have for us. But, but before we do that, I, we need to be sure we come at it in the most wise way. Remember, every scripture and passage and story in the Bible is within a context of the Bible. There's something before going on, there's things after going on, and all of those things are important for us to interpret and understand what is going on there. And so we don't just parachute into the story of David and Goliath in some isolated way. It, it falls into a bigger story. And so real quickly, where have we been? Well, beginning of Samuel, Israel's leader was in a leadership crisis. They were a total mess. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God raises up a prophet to speak his words to his people, Samuel. Israel then foolishly rejects God as king, and they demand a king like other nations. And he is, they are given Saul, 
that crashes and burns, and part of that judgment is that Saul is rejected. God then, because he loves his people, he is faithful to his covenant, to his people. He anoints a better king after his own heart. David, we saw last week, he's chosen king, God's choice, and now he is anointed in the Spirit's power, and we will see, we'll display faith in the Lord and model a better courage and trust in God as he leads his people. And that story fits in the bigger story of all that's been going on since Genesis, where God created a people and those people rejected him, and yet his gracious covenant continues to work on their behalf to redeem them. That leads us all the way into the New Testament and God's story in the Messiah, Jesus, to save his people, one day return to set up his glorious kingdom. So, 1 Samuel 17 falls in all of those categories. So let's pray, and then we'll just read and ask God uh, now, now to, to help us encounter him this morning. Lord, we come to your word, and, and, um, and God, I, I feel very inept this morning to, to navigate this, this big text, which is, is really to help us encounter you, Jesus. And so we, we, I need your help. We, we need your help to come to this, uh, this wonderful story, amazing story, so that we would hear from you. We would encounter you. We would be changed by you this morning as we hear your words to us. And so come, Spirit, help us for your glory and for for our joy and good. Amen. Amen. So as a story does, verse 1, we start with our setting. So our story starts with a setting. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah is Ephsdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elu and drew up on the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So some 10 to 12 miles from Bethlehem, we have this valley picture here. It comes with another difficult conflict with the Philistines. Israel camped on one side, Philistines on the other side, kind of very reminiscent of what we saw with uh, Jonathan at Michmash. Saul is at war again, but recall, these, this war is deeper than just Israel versus another nation. This is, this is Yahweh against his enemies, the idols of the nations. And there is this unique weapon coming, this conflict that we now will see from the Philistines, a powerful weapon. Verse 4, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. So here we have the mighty, the mighty Goliath, their champion. That, the, that literally means in, in the regional language, the man in of the between. The man of, in, of between. They put forward this man between Israel and the Philistine army. And, and observe, reader, what, what does scripture, the narrator, choose? How do they choose to describe Goliath? I mean, listen to the, the vivid details and descriptions. I, I kind of imagine like a scene from Iron Man, 
sweeping camera cuts around Tony Stark, right? The computerized robot metal joints interlocking, the legs, the arms, the chest, the helmet, the weapons. We're supposed to, like, feel something here as we read this. What, what do we feel? This, this tank-like, sort of impenetrable, powerful man. And we get these close-up shots like his, his heights. Six cubits in a span. That, that would equal about nine feet, nine inches. Now, I laid some carpet in my house recently, and I had this giant 12-foot roll, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to cut that and use that. And so here we go. This is for a little visual for us. This, this is nine foot. Here's, there's Goliath's face. I don't know what he looked like, but that, that's my guess. Nine foot, nine inches. Now, I'm, I'm about 6'2". Now, David was much shorter than myself. That's tall. That's, that's very tall and overwhelming. And so here's Goliath, giant, nine foot, nine inches. Now, there's some manuscript discrepancy. You might even have something in your Bible about his height. There's some manuscripts that give a shorter height, like closer to seven feet. Now, now does this matter? Well, some would say this is, this is a reason there, there's errancy in the Scripture and we can't trust it. Well, I don't think so. Not really. Either way, he is huge. The average height of an, uh, of an Israelite then was, would be much shorter, and anything going on hand-to-hand combat, this would be intimidating. So it does not diminish our confidence in the Scripture's accuracy. And actually, it could make more of the point of Saul's lack of courage, who is the tallest man of all of Israel, and he's scared to fight someone that was maybe close to his size. So, the Philistines, we're not going to leave this up the whole sermon, even though you may, may want to. <clears throat> So the Philistines' giant heights, and then look at all of the, the details around metal. Remember, the Philistines were superior metal workers, this coat of mail that weighed 126 pounds. It, it, could, it could be read in the original language, scale armor. It, it simply is really scales. His armor was like scales, almost described like serpent-like or snake-like. Remember that. And his javelin was with an iron head of 15 pounds. The men went bowling recently, and I struggled to throw a 15-pound ball, like roll a 15-pound ball down the lane. And here is, here is Goliath. He, he threw this thing with a 15-pound head uh, of iron. Shield was so big that he has to have some guy carry it before him because it's so giant. And he doesn't just stand there. He speaks. Goliath, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I, am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Goliath is basically saying, I, am I not the Philistine? And you are Israelites, and you are just Saul's slaves. Choose a man. We should, we should hear an echo here. Choose a man. Give me a man. Do you hear the echo there? Saul, the chosen one from Israel, the man of their choosing, the king of their choosing, the chosen one. I, I can imagine like a close-up 
kind of zooming in on Saul's face at this point. Choose a man, and it zooms in on Saul's face, and there he is standing, doing nothing. Choose the one that could fight your battle. And his, and his screaming, intimidating, mockery and defiance, which will continue, what does Israel do? Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They listened to the words of Goliath and were scared. And they saw Goliath and they were afraid. Remember our themes of hearing and seeing in Samuel? But we need to stop and, and remember the question earlier. What, why such an emphasis on the outward height and appearance of Goliath? I, I think God would have us, the author would have us, see through the eyes of Israel and, and see what they were fixated on in this moment. They were shaking in their boots. But we should remember the word from, words from the Lord from chapter 16 that told us, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. All of these details that we see describing Goliath are, are to wait, awaken us to what we shouldn't be looking at. What Israel shouldn't be overcome by. Yes, this guy is huge. Yes, his height is giant. From their perspective and with human eyes, they are seeing him as undefeatable. But can God's people see differently? How can God's people see, not as man sees, but as God sees? Well, there's someone who sees different. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in those days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of these three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him was Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So the author pulls us back into David and his family, making important genealogy connections, which will be important here and then into redemptive history. Reminded of David's line and his, his father, the placement in his family, And then we see what David is doing. What is he doing? He's going back and forth, ministering to and serving Saul, as we saw last week, along with returning home to feed or tend to his father's sheep. David, faithful shepherd. So if chapter 16 was a private introduction to David, chapter 17, David's sort of going public. And what what is Goliath doing? Well, each day... One time in the morning, one time in the evening, he's making his stand, hurling his mocking, threatening propositions to to Israel. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an uh, ephah of uh, of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul 
and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Now, we've already seen a few situations with elderly fathers and really bad sons. Here we have an elderly father, and we would have what seemed to be a faithful, better son. He obeys. He honors his father. He goes as he's commanded to bring provision to his brothers and to a gift to the commanders. And even as he continues to be faithful to his shepherding task. And so David takes off to what seems to be like an ordinary day, maybe a little DoorDash run, and God has, God has bigger plans than just delivering food. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. So David arrives, once again, the armies assemble, this has been the daily routine, shouting, and notice, I believe, an interesting connection. David, what did he, he left the baggage area and ran into the ranks of the war. Remember Saul? There was another reference to baggage. Saul, a very different behavior when he was among the baggage, hiding, hiding among them. David is running into war. Goliath the champion speaks, and, and note, David heard him. David hears, he sees what's going on, he's watching, and what does he see everyone do? To verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So, the army is running away scared, and all the soldiers are discussing the promise offered to the guy who would face Goliath and win. And it, this is a pretty lucrative deal. The, you get the king's daughter, you get a ton of money, and your father's house is free, meaning you're probably free from taxation and any kind of royal demands. You, you get a mansion, you get the king's wife or, or daughter, and it is, it is beautiful. But nobody looks at that as enough incentive to step up. I mean, it would be pretty hard to enjoy if you were dead, and that's what they think they would end up in. But David asks two questions. One relates to the deal on the table, this victor of Saul, uh, victor by Saul, and clarity, again, about this godless, notice the uncircumcised Philistines. There was another reference, the same term used by Jonathan. The, the, the covenant-breaking Pagan rejectors of God, mocking and defying, defying the people of the living God. David is basically saying, why isn't anybody doing something about this? 
David is concerned about the reproach of his God. The glory of God. The reproach of Israel. Not personal gain. But David's big brother overhears David's questioning. Now, Eliab, verse 28, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption or your pride and arrogance and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So in big brother-like fashion, Eliab, picking on his little brother, gets angry and he's mocking him. He's mocking him about the, the few sheep that David tends. What, just a stab at him there. And then he charges him with pride or maybe some form of laziness or slacking off, doing his job. He just wants to come down and sort of watch the show. Some commentators have noted how much Eliab in this text is sounding like Goliath. Mocking, belittling, hostile. Eliab thinks he sees at the heart level. Notice he is challenging him at that level and he doesn't see. He doesn't see as God sees. David is simply asking, what what have I done? The NIV says, can I even speak here about this? And the bullying doesn't stop David and he goes, it's like he goes around to each little group of soldiers asking the same thing. Is anyone, is someone going to do something about this Philistine? Well, King Saul gets wind of this. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. I love that. David sees him as God sees He says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? He says, look at you, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Saul sizes up David, and he sees as man sees, and he tries to cancel David's chances and speak down to him. But David has a rebuttal and all that. He, he looks back at his history as a shepherd, and note the way that the Lord delivered him. He had killed lions and bears, but note, David ascribes those wins to the Lord. Not his skill, not to his power, but he gives credit to Yahweh who was with him. And as I heard this story growing up, oftentimes I would just picture the lions and the bears sort of jumping and attacking David. But note how he describes this. 
These beasts were sneaking in, trying to take his little lambs. And what does David do? Rather than defensively or standing back, he initiates and he goes after those beasts. And he he doesn't feel threatened. He actually goes after his little lambs, protects them and saves them and rescues them. What's a sense of courage here that David is displaying? David's faith rests in Yahweh to do to this uncircumcised Philistine as he had did to the other beasts. That's all he's basically seeing Goliath as a beast, just another one of these beasts, just like one of them, and he ultimately has defied the armies of the living God. David sees Goliath not as his enemy or Israel's, but this is Yahweh's, and he's not going to have it. So verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling, with, uh, was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So even in Saul's blessing and acknowledgement of Yahweh in this moment, Saul is still stuck in his attempt to fight like a king of other nations. Notice, helmet and mail and sword. It sounds very Goliath-like. He, he, he puts armor on David. And he's, is he thinking that he's going to try to match Goliath in what he's doing? His solution is to use the enemy's tactics, and David won't have it. He tosses them off. He goes and finds these stones, puts them in his shepherd pouch, and with his sling in his hand, a weapon that with skill at that time, you could hurl a stone 60 to 100 miles per hour at 200 yards accuracy. And yet, his confidence is in the Lord. He approaches Goliath. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of The field. Goliath continues his mocking, defiant, serpent-like, cursing God. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Who is David representing? The Lord. His name. Notice Goliath's threats. It was David's dead body that would be given to the birds. What is David's threat? The whole Philistine army. 
is going to be given to the birds. David sees very differently. He knows the glory of God. And you don't defy the glory in the name of the holy one true God. David's approach is not with confidence in his sling, but in the power of God, in the power of the Spirit. This is the Lord's battle. This is the Lord's battle. And the end of verse 46 and 47 are a focal point of our chapter. Two things David declares with Goliath's predicted defeat. That the whole earth may know and behold Yahweh's glory as the one true and only God of the earth and of Israel. And that this assembly, God's people, may know what? That it is the Lord that saves. Not by sword, not by spear. The Lord saves. We should hear Hannah praying and singing. There is none holy like the Lord. Not by might shall a man prevail. Not by a war horse, not by swords, not by spears, not by armies. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David ran at him. Just like he ran to the bear or the lion to save his lambs. The the shepherd over his people. And he slung the stone. And before Goliath could get another word out of his gargantuan, wicked, ugly mouth, the stone sunk into his forehead. And note, he fell on his face to the ground. And David finishes, finishes off by taking his own sword and taking off his head. Oh, to one day watch a slow motion replay of this in heaven. It will make Gladiator and Braveheart, all those movies, pale in comparison to this, this moment. But, but where have we seen something like this before as we've read this, this first Samuel unfolding? A toppling, headless, false god. The Philistines, back in chapter 4, captured the ark. And they put it as a trophy before one of their their gods, Dagon, their chief god idol. And what happened in the presence of Yahweh, what God did with no army, no soldiers, and no weapons. It says Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were cut off on the threshold. Goliath falls face to the ground. Dagon falls face to the ground, both decapitated before the presence, before the king of the universe, who saves his people. Not by might, not by power, not by our works, not by Israel's hands, but by the power of God. And Goliath is just another Dagon, a weak, dumb, powerless human idol. We hear Hannah's song. 
Again, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed, His Messiah. So as David predicted, more than Goliath falls, verse 52, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherium as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. They're completely routed. News gets around, and more details about this youth, David, were needed. Verse 55, and as soon as Saul... Uh, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, if you've been reading through and following along, you might come with some questions or confusion here. Wasn't David serving Saul in his court, playing music, and and wasn't he known by Saul? This doesn't make sense. Why is he now, as it appears, doesn't know who he is? Well, one answer could be, Note the emphasis on Abner and Saul's questions. There are four times that are references about whose son are you? Whose son are you? Now, if the prize and inheritance is coming for this win to this new sort of son-in-law of Saul's wife, it's important to know what family David is coming from. So it's possible Saul didn't know for sure or he had forgotten. Or as we've seen in narratives that Scripture gives us, it doesn't always have to be linear in its description. And so the author can move stories around. Verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, David was speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul went so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So here we have the beginning of David and Jonathan's friendship. And we'll explore that more as we go through our story, but, but this love and kindred thing, it makes sense. Jonathan, as we saw, modeled true faith in the Lord, like David. They, they, were, they were like-hearted. No, matter, no wonder that their, their souls, their hearts were knit together, because they, they saw as God sees. They, they had faith on Yahweh in similar ways. And this, this royal exchange is a forecasting of what will come for David Soon, And as Jonathan, who would have been the rightful heir to the throne, in this act unknowingly passes off his sort of crown to David. God is with David. There's success and victory wherever he goes. 
And, but all will not continue as, as well. Testing is ahead. So what a story. What, what, what do we see here as this unfolded? Well, David, we see, is God's chosen king after his heart, and he displays true faith in the Lord, and, and through God's power, he saves God's people from his enemies. And through David's victory, he provides victory for all of Israel, giving all the glory to God. You see, this was Yahweh's supreme power and glory over his enemies and the idols of the nations. Israel and we are to turn and to trust in him and know that the Lord alone saves. This this comes by faith on the Lord and his salvation. You see, we see in this, this wonderful story, God's chosen representative king in the Spirit's power stands up and offers his life on their behalf, wins for them, a helpless, fearful, defeated people, and that victory is given to them because of what that representative king does. So what is our moral application of the story? Don't be a wuss or a wimp. Be more courageous like David so you can defeat in your life those big obstacles and hardships and enemies. No, not quite. So who do, who do we identify with? Who should we maybe identify with more in this story? I, I think mainly with the, the cowering, fearful, desperately needy Israel. Desperate in need of a rescue having looked to all the wrong things to save them. And God providing a rescuer, a David, who points us to to Jesus. You see, our story draws our hearts and minds back to another sort of beastly, head-destroying promise in the very beginning. Adam and Eve's sin in the fall, through the temptation of the serpent, God addresses the serpent in Genesis 3 and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God was saying sin and Satan would not have the last word. And in this verse, we have this first sort of gospel promise and message that, that God spoke God spoke of his promise and hope that would come through one, the seed of a woman, a descendant who would come and destroy God's enemies and crush the head of the serpents. And the New Testament shows us that this one is, is Jesus, who triumphs over the ancient serpent. So David is a, a type of Christ, of Jesus, who is, is co- in his covenant faithfulness for his glory, fought our battle to bring salvation to his people, and all who put their faith in Jesus will share in the benefits of the Savior's victory for His glory and for our good. You see, Israel's greatest threats and ours are not Amalekites or Philistines. The threat is us turning away from trusting in the Lord as King, from hearing Him and looking to Him and being left to our sin and Satan and the slavery of death. But Jesus comes as the better King, as the obedient Son, as the better good shepherd who, who saw his lambs caught. And he came as our rescuing representative substitute to bring salvation for a people who could not save themselves. Saints, us, 
Slaves to fear, slaves to our sins, slaves to the enemy, and Jesus on the cross, the very image of weakness, defeats our enemies, takes our curse upon himself, and by faith gives us his victory and his righteousness and secures for us everlasting hope for all of those who put their faith in him. This is what Colossians 2 speaks of. And you, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Canceling our debt, saints. Destroying our enemies, our ultimate giants, and that God through, does through His chosen man, His Son, who fought for us, who won for us, and we share in all His blessings, in all His victory. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But there is something to us in David. Do we need courage in faith like David? Is he an example for us? Well, absolutely. Yes. Yes, he is. But it flows from our faith and our union in Jesus. Because we share in the Lord's victory, we also share in his spirit. And the spirit that empowered David and raised Christ from the dead now dwells within our mortal bodies. And he gives us faith and courage to have victory over our sin against the enemies, against a world to give us courage, the world that would try to bring hate and try to stamp us out. And in our weakness, in our weakness, we look to Christ who gives us strength and courage. So we actually come in weakness and his strength is made perfect in us. And so we take David's cue and and we, we hate the evil and the wickedness that defies and distorts God's glory and we resist everything that would seek that. The things that we would put our trust in, the idols that we would turn to and that we can't save, the, the things we look to with our eyes, the worldly strengths to advance us or find our hope in, military might, political might, physical might, financial, social status might. David is an example for us to, to look away from all of those things and to look to God's glory in our weakness, the one who saves So there is a spiritual war that we do fight. But we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, 37. We are to fight this spiritual warfare and stand against the devil's scheme and the power of his spirit. So we do fight, but we are united with Jesus, which gives us courage and hope. So we are able to move towards a workplace that is is contrary anti-Christ. Or teen, you can... Be a Christian and find boldness in your school because of Jesus' power in you. And we can embrace mockery and ridicule that comes with being connected to Jesus because we are called to suffer for his name's sake, but to know that anything that happens to us, all that would come from to us will actually be gain in Christ because we have Christ our treasure. So, so, so saints, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, and our true hero and champion is who? Jesus. And because we are united with Jesus, we can stand against anything that would come towards us with hope that he is going to keep us, 
He's going to preserve us and that he has our eternal joy secured for us in his victory. May his spirit fill us with that in greater ways. Lord, we ask right now that we were reminded through this story that there is the greatest giants that needed to be dealt with in our life have been completely dealt with through you, Jesus. Through your victory, which becomes our victory. And you secured for us eternal joy with you. And so, Lord, we can find now in the moments of weakness here, if it's our fight against sin, if it's courage to stand against things that would be contrary to you, Lord, if it is, if it is sickness or illness or financial hardship, God, there is a, there's a sense that you have won for us, Lord, and you are with us in the midst of all of those struggles and battles so that we may know that we have ultimate secured hope. We're more than conquerors through you who loved us. And so, Lord, I ask you to pour out your spirit upon our hearts. Lord, to face our days and our obstacles with greater strength in you. And we will be okay with our weaknesses because in, your, Lord, in our weaknesses, Lord, your strength is made perfect in us. So, Jesus, thank you for being our representative king who faithfully won for us. We give you praise. We give you thanks. Amen.